Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3. Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. The worst days of Vicky's life were finally over, but there was no relief for her. There were only more questions swirling around inside her head like a swarm of angry bees. The police and coroner had already declared Katie's death a suicide and branded Katie as a murderer of her children. It seemed strange to Vicki that they were in such a hurry to be done with the investigation. The autopsy report wasn't done yet. The toxicology report wasn't back yet. There were so many people who had interacted with Katie in the last few days of her life who needed to be talked to. What was the reason to hurry to close the case? Captain Rick Olick of the Berkeley County Sheriff's Department was the primary investigator of Katie, River, and Aiden's death. A native of South Carolina, Olick had moved around a lot as a kid to live close to whatever church his pastor father had been assigned to. An article in Post and Courier states that Olick graduated from St. Stephen's Academy in 1982. The article goes on to say that he worked at a local grocery store before joining the Monk's Corner Fire Department. Interestingly, Berkeley County Coroner Bill Salisbury, who was a town councilman at the time, gave Olick that job. You will hear more about Bill Salisbury in the podcast. The article went on to say that Olick knew that he ultimately wanted to join the police department when he reached the minimum required age of 21. He eventually rose to the rank of captain and was chosen to be the department's lead investigator. Now let's fast forward over 20 years to 2008, and Olick and Salisbury are together again, playing huge parts in Katie's story. Olick says he has a passion for investigating, yet it took him working with coroner Bill Salisbury less than 24 hours to decide that Katie had killed herself and her children. They chose to decide that they were dealing with a suicide despite the fact that the pathologist who had performed the autopsies on Katie and River recommended that the manner of death for both stay listed as pending. 
I would think that someone who loves to investigate would have done more investigating before making such a pronouncement. Alec insisted that a piece of paper found in one of Katie's pockets proved that she was delusional. So within the first 24 hours, Captain Rick Alec and Bill Salisbury walked into Katie and Aaron's house when Jeff and I were over there trying to get some things answered with Aaron and his family. And I can still see it today. Rick Alec walks in and Bill Salisbury's waddling behind him and they're like, well, we think she had postpartum depression and committed suicide. And me and Katie's dad just looked at each other like, what are they doing? You know, we didn't know what they were doing. If they were trying to trick Aaron, you know, so he wouldn't get a lawyer. We We were shocked that they came up with that. And we just thought it was a some kind of show they were playing to fool Aaron. And then we see Aaron and his family, his mom and dad, were just falling for it and agreeing and saying, yeah, that's what she had. She had postpartum depression. And we were just totally shocked. But like, again, we didn't think this was going to stick. We just thought they didn't want Aaron to know they suspected him. So they were trying to, you know, make him not want a lawyer and play, play along with Aaron and try to get information out of him. But that wasn't the case we found out later. I know Rick Olick told me they found a note in Katie's pocket and that it had scribblings on it. And he said something about a virgin baby, the Antichrist. And I mean, that's where they got the idea that this was a suicide, that that was saying that she she was delusional and that she had written that down because she was delusional is what he was trying to tell me. Just a question. If someone believes the information that's written down on the paper, why would they have to write it down on the paper since they knew it? Or do you write information down to understand what someone else is saying? Just an investigative question. No matter what the authorities were telling her, Vicki couldn't believe that Katie had committed suicide and she certainly did not believe that Katie would kill her own children. She told herself she would never give up on finding out the truth about what happened that cold and rainy night in January of 2008. The more she pushed the police for answers, the uglier they got and began to avoid her. They didn't return phone calls or answer emails. It seemed the case was closed as far as they were concerned. I wish I could say that law enforcement always acknowledges and respects the trauma that the family of the victim has endured and responds to them with empathy and compassion. But it's often easier for them to write off mothers who advocate for their children as pushy, crazy moms who can't accept the truth. You know, it's unimaginable to think about being in her shoes but he got to, to make my daughter look like a, a murderer of her own children. 
But do they treat her with respect or do they treat her like she's the crazy mom? They did treat her like that. They dismissed her completely. They thought, oh, well, your daughter committed suicide. She's crazy. You're crazy, too. She had no support whatsoever. Have you ever looked at the credentials of this Rick Olick? Um, was he a homicide detective or was he, what What was his background? From what I understand, and I, I haven't done a whole lot of digging into him. He did not have any true background in murder cases. And I don't think, you know, he should have been one in, as the lead investigator, especially. Did anybody at the scene have any background in homicides? Yes. Charleston County forensics that came out did and actually one of their seasoned investigators had told them the train was the wrong direction and that they were you know wanting and also that the, it was staged but they did not listen vicky continued to collect what information she could but eventually the task became too much for her emotionally she packed away every document she had every clue and tried taking a break but the nagging feeling and something wasn't right never went away. When she was finally ready to take another look at the circumstances of Katie River and Aiden's death, she knew she needed help. She reached out to private investigator Jessica Sanders. Well, me and Vicki actually met because uh, she had hired me to see if her husband was cheating on her about eight years ago, and he was. And then we just kind of kicked it off and built a relationship. You know, she had lost Katie and I had lost my mom shortly be- between each other. And at that time, she told me about Katie's passing, but she didn't give me any details. And it wasn't until two years ago that she started opening up about it. And then I really wanted to get involved. As Jessica reviewed the enormous amount of information Vicki had collected, she agreed that things just didn't add up. She read and reread reports, interviewed witnesses, called Amtrak and CSX, and of course, she visited the site where Katie, River, and Aiden were found. It didn't take long for Jessica to realize that she didn't believe that Katie died the way investigators were saying that she did. Honestly, I think there's a lot of, I hate to say it, but politics involved, you know, because somebody has to go down for the mistakes that were made. A particular part of the investigation, which they, you know, claimed was their basis for suicide, um, they had listed a witness in there that had seen Katie walking the railroad tracks. And so, you know, we have always wondered who is this witness? You know, what exactly did they see? Was there a baby? You know, it, it was pretty crucial because that's that's damaging. Come to find out, you know, I go and speak with him. He was 12 years old at the time. His mother wrote a statement. And all it pretty much says is that he saw a figure walking down the tracks and it was dark. So I asked him, uh, what were you doing? And he said, well, I was going hunting with my grandfather. I said, well, did you normally do that on the weekends or the weekdays? He said the weekends. And I said, you know, about what time? And he said around four or five o'clock in the morning. Well, this happened on a Wednesday at eight o'clock at night. This witness did, was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And they knew that. If they asked those particular questions, which common sense would tell you to ask, 
You want to know exactly what this child saw, but they didn't. They used that statement in the uh, coroner report. Vicki and Jessica set up what they called a war room in Vicki's house where they could brainstorm, look through documents, listen to audio tapes, and plot details on a timeline. And of course, there were pictures of Katie and River. As every good investigator knows, you need to remind yourself of who the person whose death you are investigating was when they were alive. You owe them and their survivors that respect. When I take a case, I make sure I get a picture from the family of the victim so I can put it in a notebook. It is the very first thing when I pull the notebook out. It is the very last thing when I put the notebook back on the shelf. I want to remember that was a human being that was important to someone, someone's daughter or son or sibling. I also make it a point to find out who the victim was, who their friends were, who they hung around, what did they like, what were the things in life that gave them joy, and what did they mean to their loved ones. It is so important to make sure you know who that person was. They were important to the world and they were very important to the family. In 2015, the television show 48 Hours sent a crew to nearby Charleston to film another story, and they were told about Vicki. They met and stayed in touch with her, starting their own investigation into what happened to Katie, River, and Aiden. Vicki and Jessica sent copies of everything they had, the documents, their questions about the case, and conclusions about the original investigation in hopes that the story about Katie and her babies might push authorities into taking another look at the case. It worked. On March 2, 2019, the episode entitled Fatal Crossing aired. So when 48 Hours CBS News made the first contact to Berkeley County Sheriff's Office that they were interested in this case. Um, and the, case, the show ended up being Fatal Crossing. They were told when they called the Sheriff's Office that, no, you don't want that case. And I believe they were talking to Lieutenant Kukenda, the main investigator in 2018 and 19, no, you don't want that case. That girl was crazy and her mother's crazy. And I know CBS News 48 Hours producer told them, well, let me tell you this. I can do the whole show with or without you. I have enough evidence right now to do a whole show without you so you can come aboard or not. So that's how it got started was... They weren't going to take another case. They had already looked into this case enough, and they were only going to do this case. So the sheriff's department with the new sheriff who had just came in, Sheriff Lewis, could look good or not. So I feel like now 
knowing what I've been through for the last two years with the new sheriff's office, that that was all show. They had no intentions of doing anything, but they looked really good for the show like they were. But I can look back and know all the things they didn't do that they told me they would do. They even filmed me interviewing me with 48 hours filming. Like they brought me in for this big interview and 48 hours filmed the whole interview. But the only problem was it was, you know, it was not that much. And they told me, Lieutenant Kokenda said, well, we'll have you back in and finish this interview. Do you think I've ever been back in to finish that interview? Nope, it was only because the cameras were rolling to make them look good. When 48 Hours went to Katie and Aaron's house, the new owners approved that we could go there. They wanted to see where the bathroom is. That Aaron says he's in the shower. Here's Katie's truck start. Look around. When we get there, Berkeley County Sheriff's Office had been working on the case for about eight months. They'd never been there. The new owner says, no, they've never come by. They never came to look around the house. So because 48 hours is there, you know, if they were, it just seemed like they played another big game with us. And then the owner said, look, we got some carpet. As we're leaving, she said, my husband found some carpet up in the attic that's all rolled up and we're, you know, kind of suspicious about it. So I called Berkeley County Sheriff's Office and that was when they went and got the carpet, but we've never gotten them results on that carpet, but it was on the show. So I just felt like we were drug along. They had 48 hours actually flew down in November, 2018, when the reenactment started, when they were out there taking the measurements with Berkeley County Sheriff's Office, had hired South Carolina Highway Patrol. So 48 hours flew a crew down to film this huge event that I'd waited over 10 years for, a reconstruction to say, could she have been hit by a train? Was she dead? Was she alive? Well, that's two and, what, a year and a half ago. So it looks really good for the show. You know, they're doing a reenactment finally. We've never gotten any results. Still, the show was over, no results. So I'm trying to make the point is as good as it looked, um, I felt like it was a lot of show. Also, when the, after the show aired, I had a meeting with the sheriff and they were really disappointed how the show turned out. They said, you know, that show was mainly about you and Jessica, meaning they weren't steamboated enough. So, you know, my first meeting, I would like to say to my first meeting with Sheriff Lewis, after 48 hours called them, then I called and made an appointment to come in on the 10 year anniversary. And I had never talked to the new sheriff yet. So I got an appointment and went in. And I went, Sarah's sister, I'm sorry, Katie's sister, Sarah went, Jessica was there, and another good friend of mine who doesn't want her name out there, but so as, what, four or five women walk in to sit down with the sheriff to present what we think is wrong with the case to a brand new sheriff, and his first thing is, are you guys here to sabotage me getting reelected? Is that why 48 Hours is coming on board? And I look back at that conversation every time, instead of him saying, tell me what happened to your daughter and your grandchildren. 
He's all worried why 48 hours is knocking on his door, whether it's going to affect, it was an election year. He, he had to come in a midterm. So it was an, he was going to officially get elected. And he thought we were there to sabotage his campaign. So the first thing we had to do is convince him we weren't there to sabotage his campaign. No questions about why are we there. You know, I always go back to that. To me, your first impression really was true, even though I did not want it to be. Rick Olick was interviewed for the show. He doggedly stuck to the belief that Katie walked down the railroad tracks the night she died, carrying River, determined to kill them both. He believed that the note found in Katie's pocket with scribbling about the Antichrist showed that she was caught in the grip of spiritual warfare and it was causing her strange behavior. Behavior that only Aaron had described to Alec. No one else reported seeing, noticing anything wrong with Katie's mood or actions. Vicki remembers Alec's belief at the time a little differently. She says Alec told her that Katie was mentally ill and that her illness caused her to commit suicide. The manner of River's death was officially classified as undetermined. But Vicki felt that officials really believed that she had been murdered by Katie. Alec also ignored the first responders who overheard investigators at the scene saying that they believed it looked like the scene had been staged. There are some witnesses that I talked to that were out there at the scene, divers and first responders, that even overheard it being said that she was staged. This, she did not die here. So that was like when I, when I was told that, I'm like, so they knew back then, they just chose to not go that route. Why do you think that is? Just just politics? Wouldn't it have been easier to do your job? I don't think that it's, you know, there's two options. One, that it started out as, hey, you know, we think this is a suicide. We're not going to put any work into it, to dig into it. And then it turned into, when things started not adding up, they were willing to lie to cover it up, to cover what they did not do. And so, and then it snowballed because then more people get involved. Vicki certainly had noticed some strange behavior in the past few days, but it wasn't from Katie. It was from Aaron. It was more than his ranting about conspiracy theories the night Katie went missing, and more than his coldness at the funeral. When Aaron's mother had expressed disappointment that her grandchild-to-be was a boy as she would have preferred a girl, Aaron told Vicki that it was because Katie was not a virgin when they married. And if she had a boy, she would taint the Major's family bloodline. Rather than apologize for his mother and acknowledge the absurdity of such a statement, Aaron passively acted as though this was completely normal and rational line of thinking. And Vicki couldn't help but notice that some of the details of Aaron's account of Katie and River's last hours alive were starting to change. 
and there was the search history on the computer that was shared by Katie and Aaron. Jessica's work had discovered internet searches about a report on the radio that said two people had died in an accident with a train near Oakley Road. Aaron had made those searches more than an hour after he called Vicki to tell her he had heard that news on the radio. And there were searches about the Antichrist, something called the Jeremiah Project, and more conspiracy theories, all made when only Aaron was home to access their computer. Eight days after his family died, Aaron did meet with the police to answer some questions which seems strange if the police were so certain that Katie had killed herself. Rick Olick told 48 Hours that the police worked the case for months and at one point even considered Aaron Major a suspect. That thought must not have lasted very long at all. Remember, Rick Olick and Bill Salisbury informed the family within 24 hours of her death that Katie had committed suicide. That interview, if you even want to call it that, was nothing like an interview you might see on a true crime TV show. Despite first insisting that Katie was engaged in a spiritual battle, Alec also told 48 Hours that he believed Aaron's theory that Katie had suffered from postpartum psychosis despite never contacting Katie's OBGYN for a professional opinion. That doctor would later state that she saw no indication that Katie was in any distress when she saw her just one day, one day before Katie died. In looking at notes Alec took the time, it seemed that he was very willing to take everything Aaron said as the gospel truth. It's puzzling that he gave no credibility to witnesses who saw Aaron's hand grossly swollen before Katie's viewing, instead relying on a single witness who said that Aaron injured himself when he had punched a wall at the funeral home. I will go in depth into that connection and that witness later. Even if it didn't happen, it certainly doesn't rule out Aaron's hand already being injured before he supposedly punched that wall. Talk about stunning TV. When confronted with printouts of the dozens of emails Vicky sent him that he never returned and asked for an explanation, Alec began to have trouble remembering much more about the case. If you haven't taken the time to watch 48 Hours after this podcast, please go watch it. It is unbelievable TV. I had a neighbor who was in Florida who called me about this particular scene. Truly stunning TV. You know, he played on the part that he was, you know, forgetful. He didn't remember. It was a long time ago. But he had nine months to prepare for them to come because he knew when the case was being reopened. So he had from that time to nine months when 48 Hours showed up to talk to him to educate himself on any anything wrong with that case. And he didn't do it. He 
or at least he pretended he didn't do it. Well, also, um, probably the biggest case in that area, really, three people are dead. I think you don't forget that. By the time 48 Hours came to town asking questions, Alec had moved on to Monk's Corner Police Department, and there was a new sheriff in town. Sheriff Dwayne Lewis listened carefully to everything presented to him by 48-hour producers. Lieutenant Dean Kokinda was assigned to take another look at the case. Vicki once again had hope. Yeah, so when I found out that the new sheriff, you know, was going to take another look at the case, he assigned a detective, Lieutenant Kokenda. I was pretty much ecstatic after 10 years. And the sheriff is such a likable man. And, you know, I was so wanting to trust him. Um, Yeah, I was just, I was so excited. I I was, and, you know, I can be a little naive and I just thought this is the best thing and they're gonna do it this time. Retired investigator Daryl Lewis joined Kokinda and they quickly discovered that the southbound train that Alec and his team determined had hit Katie had not run that night. Okay, I'm going to say it again. The southbound train that Alec, Rick Alec and his team determined had hit Katie had not run that night. Kokinda couldn't help but wonder what else the original investigation may have gotten wrong. The sheriff's office said they would do a reenactment to see if it was plausible that Katie's death was caused by being hit by a train. You know, I, I know a good bit about train incidents. There's absolutely no way that she would have landed so close to the tracks and been intact being hit by a train. There's just no way. It's not feasible. And the way that she was positioned almost felt like she was being exposed purposely. And it broke my heart. You know, we have forensics and reconstruction people. Did they do anything like a forensic analysis or reconstruction on the train hitting her? They did nothing. They did nothing back then. And since day one of reopening, that's what we were pushing for, you know, to show us how the train could have impacted her in her land the way she did, how she did, so forth. And it never happened. They claimed they had the highway patrol do a reenactment, but then we never got any results from that. And they claimed, oh, we're, we're not going to use that. We're going to do another one. When the another one never came. So we know nothing about what the original quote unquote reenactment showed or reconstruction. Her leg, the large wound on her leg, if you look at it from the exterior to exterior, it is about the width of a tire. And it almost would seem like, and I've seen degloving before, you know, if you run come over one side, the other side, yeah, I don't want to give out too much gruesome details, but that's another possibility. You know, we wondered about Aaron's parents' truck that disappeared for months. You know, could it have been involved? And did they accidentally hit her? And that it originally started that way. And fortunately, there's several scenarios, but to me, none of them are suicide. 
In May of 2019, investigators publicly stated that Aaron was a suspect, in fact, the only suspect in the deaths of his wife, Katie, and his infant daughter, River. And then, as quickly as the new investigation started, it ended, with investigators saying they did not have enough evidence to charge anyone with anything in the connection of Katie, River, and Aiden's death. The case is open, but it does not appear that anyone in the Sheriff's Department is actively working it. I do have a PS on that, and that is going to be an episode in itself with audio from Sheriff Dwayne Lewis. Did you, were you working it when the two police officers that were on 48 hours, were you working it at that point? Yes. Okay. And that's when they reopened it, right? Correct. Were they open to you helping them or were they not open to that? Um, I would say at first they were a little hesitant, but then as I started sending them, you know, document after document, things that we had compiled, evidence, you know, they were, they were more open to it. We don't really understand exactly what they're labeling this as because in the meeting they said it was still open, but yet they're not going to do anything further. And, and I feel like that kind of, you know, makes it where it's limiting what we can do. Exactly. That's a technique used um, open, but not active. So, and that's used on a lot of uh, victims' families, which I think that um, that can be changed. But is there enough evidence if you just look hard enough to question the findings that Katie committed suicide? Vicki and Jessica think so. The producers of 48 Hours thought so. I think so. And if she didn't commit suicide... How did she, River, and Aiden die? Join me next week as I discuss the different versions of events that Aaron has told, evidence from the investigators used to reach their conclusions that has since been refuted, and discrepancies in that night's timeline. Without Warning Podcast. Season 3 investigation derailed. Executive director, executive producer, and host, Sheila Wysocki. And announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots-to-the-ground, passionate, laser-focused research. 